There's no secret formula for better service throughout the customer journey. But there is the all-new service hub from HubSpot. It makes it infinitely easier to scale customer support and increase retention. By bringing service and support together in one powerful platform, you can deliver the best experiences for your customers and your teams. Free up time for your reps to focus on complex issues with an AI-powered help desk. Proactively drive retention with customer health scores that help keep your business ahead, stopping churn in its tracks. And give your entire go-to-market team the data they need to operate as one unified, powerful front. Also, you can easily support, strengthen, and grow your customer base. Secrets out. HubSpot Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. What's going on, everyone? Zachary Crockett here. You're listening to The Hustle Daily Show. We've got a special episode for you today. We're talking sneakers. What used to be a small niche hobby is now a multi-billion dollar global industry. It's rife with competition, controversy, and drama. There are teens on TikTok reselling millions of dollars worth of shoes, There are stock markets for sneakers, and there are bots that buy up new drops to try to corner the market. We brought a special guest on the show today to help us make sense of it all. John Kim is the editor-in-chief of the website Sneaker News. He's been closely following sneaker culture for more than 20 years. We recently sat down with him for an interview to talk through the economics of the sneaker resale market, how Kanye West's self-implosion has affected his deal with Adidas, and a whole lot more. Here's our conversation with John. John Kim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, to start off here, just give us a little primer of how you first got into sneakers. Oh, man. (laughs) You know, there was no direct path into this career. I went to school for pre-med. I have a degree in biomedical sciences, which naturally led to sneakers, of course. (laughs) But, you know, just growing up in the 80s and 90s, I idolized Michael Jordan and NBA basketball and sneakers. I was obsessed and I wanted to make that into a career somehow. You know, my dream was to work for Nike or Reebok or Adidas or any other brand. Eventually, I got connected with Yuming Wu, who is the founder and publisher of Sneaker News. Mm -hmm. I joined in 2008 when it was in its very early stages. And just seeing how the internet was taking a very specific direction and how social media was growing, I thought, okay, this could be a very big opportunity. So I decided to stick with it. And however many years later, here I am today. So when you first joined Sneaker News, where was sneaker culture at the time? Were we talking like more of a niche community than we see now? Oh, it definitely was. Sneaker News was founded in 2006, but in 2008, 2009, that's when sneaker culture combined with the growth of the internet. Mm-hmm. In the early 2000s, the internet was mostly message boards and forums. Right. There was no dedicated website or a blog. Each region had its own niche. There's New York sneakerheads, there's California sneakerheads, Japan, whatever. And we just wanted to serve that community. So do you have like a massive personal collection yourself? Oh, it was just so funny because yesterday I'm preparing like a photo shoot for someone for Air Jordan 1s and I have like 60 pairs. It took me an hour and a half. But yeah, (laughs) my personal collection at one point surpassed a thousand pairs. I was just in crazy hoarding mode. I think right now it's in a very humble five to 600, I think. (laughs) I, I somehow fit it all in my Brooklyn apartment. In terms of value, like what's the most valuable pair in your collection? There's one shoe that... It currently doesn't have a price, which is kind of telling. Wow. So it's that rare. 
The term friends and family is quite common in the world of sneakers where Nike will make a very small batch of like 27 pairs, which is Mm. microscopic in this day and age. And they'll make it just for the staff if they worked on something or like some execs. Nike did a collaboration with a boutique out in California called Undefeated. And it was for a Kobe shoot. And I think there's only 20 pairs and I I was gifted one of them. And of course, after Kobe passed away, like just the value of Kobe shoes just went high and high. And I mean, I'm never going to sell those shoes, but that just gives you an idea of just the nature of why some people would pay so much for one pair of shoes. (laughs) But I would say that's probably up there. It's probably maybe in the 10,000s, something like that. So for you, this is a love affair that goes a long way back. But in recent years, we've seen a huge swell of interest in collecting sneakers I think the last I saw, the sneaker industry at large is projected to be worth $120 billion by 2026. It seems like just in a few decades, sneakers have gone from sort of a niche stratified subculture into this massive mainstream business. What do you think has driven that trend? It first starts with social media. Mm -hmm. You know, it's such a great tool for connecting the community. It connects brands and retailers and even media platforms like Sneaker News from reaching a new audience. Sneakers just became like a really easy way to stay in the conversation on social media. Mm-hmm. And then sneakers became a very easy entry into the world of investing. Mm-hmm. You know, people have a hard time letting go of their cash, obviously, especially if you're not used to investing in a mutual fund or whatever. Right. They want to see that instant profit. So, you know, you buy a pair of shoes, you sell it on eBay or sell it on StockX or whatever, and you instantly get paid out that profit. You know, it gets addicting, especially if you're like a 15 year old kid. Like, I made 20 bucks, man. I didn't do nothing. You know, <laughs> right, right. $20 when you're a kid is like, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. And I think just the ability to buy and sell sneakers got so easy. Yeah. So I think that really contributed to people just looking at sneakers purely as an investment thing, which I do have my opinions on, but it is what it is. Sure. And now you have people who that's their full-time job. They're just flip sneakers and right. they may not have a passion for it, but they have a passion for making money. And, you know, I can't hate on that. So, yeah, it seems crazy that like sneakers of all things would sort of become this alternative asset class. But then again, you know, I guess all collectibles are weird when you think about it. There's not really a rhyme or reason why a piece of cardboard on like a baseball card is worth $1,000. Yeah. I mean, sneakers, like everyone has feet. Right, right. You know, everyone has owned a pair of sneakers at some point. It's crazy how sneakers has just become this global currency almost where right, everyone can kind right. of relate to Jordan or who Kanye or Virgil or whatever. Yeah. It really knows no bounds in terms of age or gender, you know, men, women, children, mm-hmm. Like Jordan Brand drops baby shoes for $70 and they sell out. (laughs) I've seen more news on sneakers during the pandemic years than I think I ever have. It seemed to really like come to life in the pandemic with work from home culture, athleisure, sort of like people turning away from formal wear a little bit more. Yeah. Did you see that boost on your side of things? I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that corner offices and boardrooms are not being held by people who were born in the 80s now. Right. To me, the athleisure boom started way before the pandemic. I mean, sure. suits with like tennis shoes are now a thing. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends who work in finance and they hit me up every week saying, yo, I need these Jordans. Like, how do I get them? So it's yeah. been a shift even before the pandemic, in my opinion. Yeah. Has sort of the broader popularity of sneakers changed the way that the major sneaker companies market shoes? They have like a broader audience in mind now, right? So they kind of have to change the way they think about sneakers. I mean, if you're trying to please, you know, 70 out of 100 people, the product tends to be a little less daring. In my opinion, the creativity of sneakers has kind of gone away a little bit. 
But I understand it. It's a business, you know, now that they have the intention of a larger audience, not just people who are like hardcore gym people. They're people who wear sneakers for comfort. It's definitely affected the creativity, in my opinion. But that's not saying that all these brands don't have a specific team dedicated just to make like high energy product collaborations. Has the drop model always been part of sneaker culture, dropping special releases? And how exactly does that work? And how has that model evolved? Oh, man, it's crazy. So like release dates are obviously not limited to just sneakers, you know, video games, movies, electronics, whatever consumer product, right? But there's something about like camping out for sneakers. And when I say camping out, it just means waiting in line overnight. And it's the same people coming to every same release because they just wanted their sneakers. So that's really how like the community formed. And then as sneakers got more and more popular, you have a bunch of people now showing up at midnight to wait for the store to open at 9 a.m. And sometimes, you know, things could get a little rowdy. And then the brand steps in to say, okay, no more midnight Mm -hmm. releases because it gets too dangerous. So then it became like digital only where you can only buy the shoes online. And that's where bots come in. I have a pretty high position in this world of sneakers. Even I can't buy shoes online. You need some sort of edge, at least on the software standpoint. And I just can't get myself to do it. You just can't log on at 10 a.m., go on Nike.com and buy a pair of shoes anymore. You really can't. Everything is a draw system. It's basically like winning the lottery every time. Sometimes Nike releases their internal numbers and a particular shoe, they'll have over a million submissions. I'd rather just play the Powerball or something, you know what I mean, with those odds. Right, right. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. It sucks that like I can't even buy a pair of shoes, but at the same time, I just know that there is a huge community for us to reach. How do like the true sneakerheads feel about the rise of these bots and how tough it's become to get shoes? I'm not ashamed to say in the world of sneakers, I'm a grumpy old man, like we all are. (laughs) It's like, you know, you shake your fist at the clouds. Yeah. Like, take my money, but I can't even buy the shoes, you know? Are they making any efforts to sort of curb the bot problem? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, every major sportswear brand has invested in some anti-bot technology and creating their own algorithms. Mm -hmm. Like Nike, for example, if you want access to this shoe, you must have tried to buy this shoe and bought this shoe from like two years ago because it's all under your member account. So I really do like the incentivized way. It makes the membership aspect a little more robust than just how many dollars are you spending. Sure. But still, generally speaking, it's a crapshoot. Like I said, I don't even try to buy shoes online anymore. I'll pay the extra if I have to, if I really want it, or I'll try to like call in some favors. I don't know, but <laughs> at this point, it's just too much. All right, so you've got the main sale event of shoes, but then you've also got this sort of thriving resale market that's going on, the aftermarket, which I'm assuming a lot of these bots are probably set up for the resale market, right? Oh, for sure. It's guys buying 500 pairs of shoes with the bot and then flipping them for more money than they sell for. You know, there's so many platforms to sell things now. I think that was what was missing in the world of flipping. There really wasn't a way for you to buy and sell shoes as if they're trading stocks on Fidelity or something like that. (laughs) There's this running joke in the sneaker resale community. It's just resellers are selling to other resellers until, you know, nobody wants a shoe anymore. But I can't even count the number of times where a sneaker like went down in value because there is a finite amount. Once a pair gets worn, it's kind of like a new car. Like you drive it off the lot, like it loses its value. So there's a finite number of new pairs. So some shoes, like it just makes more sense to wait it out. So people just keep buying and buying and buying. So reseller to reseller to reseller, and then someone eventually gets stuck holding the bag, I'm guessing. Yeah, definitely. Or they just have to wait a few years until it goes up again at some point. Or maybe Nike just releases them again. You know, Nike has mm-hmm. done that where they re-release a particular shoe, like Air Jordans particularly. Like there was special colors that they were made just for Michael Jordan. Right. And from like 07 to 2015, there was just this market of high-end collectors 
basically buying the same shoe and just passing it around their group. And now Jordan's like, oh, we're going to release the shoes, you know, 100,000 pairs for a couple hundred bucks. So they're just like, damn. Like, yeah, yeah. There was just like a viral TikTok video of this kid who bought a bunch of Jordans and had boxes stacked up to his ceiling. And then they did the re-release and he was like, ah, f- I'm stuck with like $20,000 worth of yeah. shoes now. The global resale market alone, I think it was worth somewhere around $6 billion in 2019. It's projected to be worth $30 billion in 2030. So there's definitely still a lot of room to grow in the resale market. I feel like last year in particular, there was sort of a lot of weird resale stories in the news. Wasn't there like a kid in Oregon, the son of some Nike executive who was getting a special hookup of some kind? From what I know, the son was a big time reseller. He wasn't necessarily doing anything illegal. But from what I know, he was buying a bunch of shoes from the Nike employee store. And he was potentially buying and selling shoes from there. It's just really bad optics. Like if I was a Nike exec and I knew my son was doing that, she should have been like, look, I could lose my job over this. So do it, but you can't use any of my discount. You can't use any of that stuff. So it was a really bad look. And this was at the peak where it was impossible to buy sneakers. The sneakers seemed to be going to those who had access to these bots, who were able to buy dozens of pairs at one time or backdooring, which is the practice of basically buying a huge bulk of a shoe for, I guess, a bit above the retail price and flipping it later down the line. And it just became really unfair where you know people just getting at the sneakers can't buy the sneakers. The people who are in it a long time can't buy the sneakers. So hmm. it was just so easy to point the finger and blame Nike. But yeah, I think they could have handled it so much better. Can you just kind of walk us through how a typical resale operation might work? They might set up some bots, get 100 pairs of these shoes, and then they go to platforms like eBay or StockX and sort of make a decision of how long to hold them, when to sell them, how much to sell them for. It's like buy low, sell high type of thing. So yeah, that's basically how it's done. It's whoever is able to get a bulk of something or just multiple pairs of something or they'll just buy it immediately from someone else. You just sit, wait for the price to mature a little bit. Almost every sneaker, it goes up just before the release and once the day of the release and maybe three days leading into the actual time people receive the shoes, the prices will dip a little bit. And then that's when prices start to slowly go up and up and up. It's really no different than any other stock or flipping crypto or anything like that. It's a timing thing. There's no rhyme or reason. Typically, sneakers tend to always creep upwards until Nike decides to re-release a shoe or something happens with that shoe where it's just not cool anymore or something like that. Mm -hmm. Trends obviously have a big play into resale value. For example, there's a particular shoe called the Nike Dunk and Nike made a skateboarding version. So it's called the SB Dunk. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the most important shoes of the early 2000s. It was the shoe that people hunted Nike was doing collaborations with skate shops, artists. They really kind of set the blueprint of how sneaker culture is done today. And it kind of lost its luster. I would say for 10 years, like no one gave a shit about them. Like you couldn't even sell them. Hmm. And then Travis Scott and Kyrie Irving and some like well-known sneaker guys just started wearing them out of nowhere. It wasn't even like Hmm. planted by Nike. They're like, you know what? I really like these shoes and I really like skate culture and that like exploded the market again. So it's these like unpredictable things. Sure. Like in 2016, if you told me that this shoe is going to be worth 10 grand, I'd be like, nah, you lying. No way. But Are there SB Dunks worth 10 grand now? Oh, easily. Wow. There's some that are probably worth 100 grand right now. Holy crap. Okay. One example, there's one called the Pigeon Dunk. Basically, Nike tapped four guys to make four designs based on the city, London, New York, Tokyo, and Paris. And the one in New York was done by a guy named Jeff Eng. He's known as Staple. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yo, New York City is the pigeon. So he made like a gray, little pink, 
and he just released a shoe. It was covered by news because there were like fights. And now I think a brand new pair, they're probably easily in like 50 grand. Wow. There's another shoe called the Paris Dunk where it's inspired by very Parisian shit. And one dude I know, mm -hmm. he flew to Paris that night, I think, to buy as many pairs as he could. And he just sat on them. And for a while, they were going for like a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks. Now you can't find a pair for under a hundred grand. Wow. I mean, I'm sure Sotheby's did an auction recently. I think it ended at like 76,000 or something like that. Okay. When like a really well-known dude with money says, hey, I want to buy the shoes. It's like, you've already held on to them too long. Wait till Beyonce or Rihanna calls you, you know, right. you want that connection anyway. So yeah. sneakers have in that way also in terms of like social currency, it's a way to kind of get yourself in the door. Mm -hmm. But going back to your question, like how does the resale thing work? It's buy low, sell high, you know, StockX and eBay make it really easy. StockX and Goat actually make it easy. eBay, which was the original marketplace for stuff like this, they've kind of revised their business a little bit to make the selling process a lot easier. Or if you can really use sneakers to build up your own personal brand on social media and you can start your own store. Like why give eBay and StockX the seller fees when you could just sell it yourself if you have your own audience? Sure. So that's another route. Yeah. On the one hand, I could see a case for platforms like StockX being good for Nike because they're building hype for the shoes and they're perpetuating the popularity of, of the sneakers. But I do know that companies like Nike have some beef with StockX, right? Oh, of course. <laughs> it's, I mean, sort of, it's sort of a rot relationship. It's a love-hate thing. Yes, they do benefit. One example of that is another type of dunk called the Panda Dunks. It's just a black and white sneaker. The retail price is 100 and it was selling for around 250 sure. So they're like, F let us eat some of that money. So they just re-release the shoe every two months. So I think that's an example of how <laughs> they use resale values and you know what these platforms like StockX provide them. But at the same time, like sometimes it kills a project before it even launches. Like They have an upcoming release and right now the market dictates that it's selling for under retail. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if you're the creative guy behind it, it's like, man, do you want to get fired or taken off of future product just because you know some kids on StockX don't want to pay like double the retail value? So in that way, it can be a double-edged sword. Mm. I don't like how everything is just numbers-based. I would love to see some crazy designs. Almost every pair of Jordan in history sat on shelves. You know, they weren't like instant hits either. So who knows what can happen? But yeah, there's also the beef with like their NFT project and all that kind of stuff. And sure. it's like, oh, you don't know the image. And that gets into this whole other, you know, muddy situation sure. with Web3 and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's weird. It's like they help each other. They hate each other. That's a really interesting point you just made that I hadn't thought of, just that Nike can use sites like StockX to sort of assess the market value of a shoe. Yeah. It's almost like a little research firm that they can tap into yeah. to help their own business and pricing models. Because if you think about it, nothing sells on StockX for retail. Like if you could sell it for retail, you might as well just buy it at the store. So everything is either right. above retail or under retail. So that I think shifts like pricing for Nike. It's like, all right, this shoe is 160, but people are buying at 120. Do we maybe lower the cost a little bit and just make more direct sales in that way? And so they don't have to mark down the shoes. You know, I'm sure that affects the way they do pricing and allocation and maybe we bump up the production numbers, stuff like that. For example, like the shoes that do sell for above retail that are high profit potential, like they are so profitable because they're a limited edition shoe. You know, if Nike says, hey, you know what? You guys love this shoe so much. We're going to drop another 50,000 pairs. That's going to tank the value, you know? Yeah. So it doesn't happen too much where Nike will look at a shoe and 
say, let's release this over and over again. I think that the dunk I showed, it's just a simple black and white shoe. It's dropped every two months for the last year hmm. and it keeps selling out. Nike is just printing money and they raised the retail from 100 to 110, which doesn't seem like much. It's still under the tax line, mm-hmm. but $10 times how many pairs of shoes, man, that's easy money. They're, Nike's been printing money with shoes, you know? Yeah. And that's just an example of how like Nike is killing the resale market which consumers like because they can buy the shoes that they want for a reasonable price. But I'm sure resellers kind of hate it. So. Sure. Hey, everybody. I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work. And it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team Alan, Leanne, Elliot as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts. Another thing that sort of popped in my mind, obviously, is Yeezys. Kind of an interesting case there. Yeezys is Kanye West's shoe line with Adidas. How has all of the controversy around the Kanye West stuff impacted Yeezy sales? I think um, it's worth looking at where Yeezy was before this whole split happened. From 2015, when Yeezy first started up until 2018, 2019, they were killing it. Like They were outselling right. Jordan. And in 2020, 2021, it got to a point where they were just releasing a lot of product. I think going back to the whole work from home conversation, it's like Yeezy footwear is very like very out there and it has to look good in an outfit. But if you're sitting at home wearing it and just looking at it in your hand, like what good is it? So the resale prices for Yeezys were starting to just flatline a little bit and just kind of taper into retail price, which means eventually the resale market was going to die. Okay. So it was kind of getting at that point. Interesting. Not to say that there weren't certain releases that did have a demand, but for the most part, a lot of the designs were very out there. (laughs) And plus the MSRP starts at 200 up to 300. So again, the retail price is high as is. And you factor in seller fees and all that. So in order to make a profit, you have to sell a $200 shoe for 280 and it just wasn't there. And then this whole split happens and Adidas just kind of hit a wall. Like Kanye was really the energy driver for that brand. The Adidas in their latest earnings calls, they said they're sitting on like half a billion on Yeezy product that just sitting. Oh my gosh. So it's like, what do you do with it? Can you want to just erase the Yeezy name? It has like an asterisk on the shoe now. Like, are kids really going to want it if it's not associated with Yeezy? It's a very weird position, but we've seen so many weird things happen in sneakers already. After Yeezy departed, there really isn't that much of a market for it anymore. I think it was already approaching the, okay, we're kind of getting bored of this a little bit. There was some really, really great product, but for the most part, it was just doing numbers, just getting Yeezy in as many people's hands as possible. So, sure. But that happens normally. That happens with Jordans. That happens to a lot of Nikes. It's not just a Yeezy thing and not just an Adidas thing. It's just when the product gets exhausted, you know, and the consumers just want something new, it's, you know, the numbers don't lie, I guess. I guess more broadly, the last data I saw said that the resale market's cooling down just a touch. It was like stratospheric last year. So maybe just returning to some kind of normalcy. But I saw that... um, the average price return on StockX in 2022 was negative 7% compared to 23% in 2021. Are you getting the vibe that the resale market is sort of tapering a little bit right now? I mean, I can speak on this endlessly. Let me just touch on the the main points. Number one, rising retail prices means smaller margins. Mm -hmm. Rising seller fees means smaller margins. 
and the IRS. So basically, <laughs> before 2022, if you kept your sales under $20,000 and 200 sales per platform, IRS don't give a shit. Really? Now, in 2022, it was $600. That's two pairs of shoes. Right. You sell more than two pairs of shoes, you got to report it as taxable income. It's capital gains. So sneaker resales considered a capital gain now? Yep. Wow. Okay. It's sneakers, basketball cards, anything. And it's like 600 bucks right. is nothing. Like the logistics of that just made no sense. Like I was speaking to my accountant. It's like, how would eBay know that I'm not selling like old toasters <laughs> or a microwave? Right, right. And 600 bucks is nothing. You know, especially in sneakers, two sales and you're done. Sure. So that's why that really stopped people from selling because they just didn't want, you know, Uncle Sam to know about their money. And up until that point, people were just wheeling and dealing left and right because it was like less margins, also StockX and eBay and go their seller fees weren't that crazy because they were just trying to amass as many users as possible. And now that they got them, they're like, all right, now the fees go up. Now you have to pay for shipping and there's a processing fee, you know, like all these little things that you know, add into the total cost. So the margin makes no sense. At the same time, you know, the consumer's like Okay, if I have to pay X amount for the shoe, I don't want it. You know, it's like a two hundred eighty-five dollars plus fifteen shipping, nah. But three hundred dollars free shipping, <laughs> I'll take it's it. Very price sensitive market. Oh, one hundred percent. And so, yeah. rising fees, the IRS taking notice, that definitely made a huge impact. And the funny thing is, like four days before the new year, I think it was December twenty-sixth, there was a email. Basically, I think the IRS reached out to eBay and all these platforms, saying, "All right, we're going to suspend this for a year." So I think the IRS just isn't prepared to tackle this because the whole flipping business and not just sneakers, just anything, like even people with Etsy accounts selling, you know, homemade scarves or whatever, like they didn't know how to handle that. So they delayed it for one more year, but everyone thought that they were going to get taxed up the ass for selling shoes. So I think that was a huge contributor to the slowdown in the resale market. And I think people were just trying to get rid of shit as well. You know, I think because there's so much product out there, like there's dozens of sneaker releases every weekend, every weekend, Reebok, Adidas, Jordan, Nike, there's just too much. So it's like, all right, we're not all made of money and, you know, inflation's bad right now. My economy is not doing well. So the people who are spending all this money on sneakers, like they now need to buy eggs and milk and right. <laughs> all these, you know, essentials that are just rising in price. So it, that definitely hit the market as well. But it, it's just really the rising fees, the rising retail price. So the, the cost to even secure the product and the fact that the IRS is, you know, like watching your back, it's not fun at all. Yeah. Right, right. What would you say to like a, a young kid who is in love with the new sneaker drop and wants to get it, but has to compete with all these bots and play this crazy game that we have now. Oh man, honestly, if you have access to it, I would say become a regular at a sneaker store. Hmm. Maybe not like a Foot Locker or like a finish line because they have like corporate rules. But if you become a regular at a sneaker store and you just want to show up and shoot the you don't have to spend money. Just become a regular. Mm -hmm. They're going to hook you up. They're going to be like, look, I know you talk about these shoes. We're dropping them this Friday. Just come by this time. We'll we'll hook you up. And that's what the mom and pop shops and the sneaker boutiques still do, which is why they're so Mm -hmm. valuable. That would be my number one piece of advice. Become a regular. Just like if you go to a bar and you're regular, they're going to throw you a free shot here and there. Or, you know, like they're going to take care of you, you know? And if you're just a dude that just wants to buy shoes online, like you're no special than anybody else, right? right? If you don't have that opportunity and you can't buy shoes at retail, there's so many other ways to buy shoes without having to pay like a huge margin on top. Every like community marketplace, like Reddit has one. You can look on Instagram. There's sneaker consignment shops now opening up in every city and they're like small operations. And since they have to compete with like a bigger platform, they will give you a better price. 
So if you have to go the resale route, look for the smaller sellers first, you know, and of course, be careful with your purchases. Don't buy like a super limited edition shoe from like a random dude because you might get fakes, which is another huge problem. Right. But if you're looking for just the latest drop and they're like, look, we'll sell it to you for 20 bucks above retail. Sometimes you just got to eat that cost. Sure. It sucks, but that's just the nature of the game, you know? Well, last question here. You've been in the game a long time. Looking back across the evolution of sneakers, did you ever imagine we'd be here now? Hell no, man. Like, dude, <laughs> there was a time when I was really into it the most in college, early 2000s, when I was like on the forums, like talking with people that I've met. I'm like, man, am I crazy? I look at my wall of shoes. And at that time, maybe I had like 30 pairs of shoes, which was ridiculous at the time. I never thought this would be a thing. You know, like when I first decided to pivot to working for Sneaker News full time, I was doing some other things. I thought, all right, the very least I want to do is maybe earn back the salary, you know, because you still have to be financially responsible. And then from there, I was like, all right, I want to earn back the salary I would have made if I continued this other career path. And then I think I just got in really early. The sneaker editorial business is really small. There's like less than a dozen people in the world that can earn a living doing it. Yeah. You know, and we employ like five of them. The rest are at our competitors who they steal from us. But anyway, <laughs> uh, that's another conversation. But, but yeah, it's just, I never really thought. So people who do end up working for Sneaker News, they go on to work for brands, other media companies. Mm -hmm. Like there's just not many. It's a very, very small percentage of people who could do this for a living. And I feel very blessed, you know, every day. Like it's a lot of work to keep on top of everything to deliver content for our followers and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I'm like, okay, this isn't like the end of the world if we get something wrong or if we missed out on a, a task or something like that. It's just sneakers. Yeah. I do feel very fortunate that I get to live the life that I do and my job is pretty chill. You know, I could just do this during the middle of the day and whatnot. So very blessed. All right. John Kim, thanks for your time, man. It's always fun to chat. I don't really do podcast things too much. To be honest, I do get hit up quite a bit to do podcasts, but I'm a fan of HustlePod. Oh, thanks, dude. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. You're a super interesting dude. Thanks for your time. It was really fun chatting. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for tuning in to the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor today is Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer, as always, is Darren Clark. We've got a lot more tech and business coverage for you in our newsletter. If you're not subscribed, go ahead and get yourself signed up over at thehustle.co slash email. We'll catch you all tomorrow.